There was a Methodist standing ovation. <laughs> well, I want to start out just uh, pointing out again for you that your sermon notes that you have during this series, Messages from the Mountainside, because uh, some of you last week were just stumped by the little puzzle that was, or cryptograph that was part of the uh, sermon notes last week. Those of you who came, I had two people who solved it, came and told me about that. But then others were asking for the hint, and I told them, just put a period at the front, meaning it's backwards. So today, it's not backwards, and perhaps you figure out what the little cliche said, even though the words are grouped, the letters are grouped differently than you're used to seeing. So if you see what it says, read it out loud with me. A penny saved is a penny earned. See, it was so easy. It was so easy. The whole idea of that, as we looked at cliches last week and as we looked at Beatitudes, is sometimes we need a little help to break the code. And uh, Jesus does that for us so many times. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is filled with the one-liners and things that we uh, are supposed to understand, but don't always Thankfully, Jesus comes along and interprets things for us every once in a while. And from time to time, he'll give us a parable or two to help us interpret what's intended by a certain saying or a passage. So I'm glad that some of you were able to break the code last week. Let's see what we can do to break the code this week with what Jesus has to say to us in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll pick up where we left off last week with the 13th verse of Matthew's fifth chapter. Let me invite you to stand as you're able for the reading of the gospel. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Well, let me take just a moment to reset our sanctuary map for us. Some of, many of you were here last week and uh, got a glimpse at the map of where we are around the Sea of Galilee. But what we did was to uh, set the front row of pews as the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. And then all the way around here, including the choir, back to the back of the chancel and back around. 
Now, on the Sea of Galilee's northern coast, almost at its northernmost tip, is the city or town of Capernaum. There's the remnants of a synagogue there now that we understand to have been Simon Peter's mother-in-law's synagogue that she attended. But then if you go over here to where Frank sits, uh, Mary uh, Magdalene came from the little town of Magdala over here. About halfway in between is the little town where uh, John Gist is. Yeah, oh, good. He remembers he's a citizen of Tabga. Uh, loaves and fishes fed to the 5,000 associated with the town of Tabga. Over here to the south and the east, we have the, the Greek 10 cities of the Decapolis, including Gerasa, Gadara, several others like that. Over here, uh, kind of uh, where Kim, Dan, and uh, Suzanne are. Y'all raise your hand so they'll see where you are. In the city of Tiberias, named after the second Caesar of Rome. And, but then one other thing you should know about is down here toward the very southern end of the uh, Sea of Galilee. Over here where the choir is. And, oh, I guess Tim is fishing out here somewhere on the sea. Uh, down here toward the southern end where the Jordan flows out of the Sea of Galilee... There's a series of ramps built, almost like a boat ramp, but it's for people to walk or even people in wheelchairs to find their way down to the river to be baptized. There are railings to help assist people as they walk. It's an elaborate place, but it's a beautiful setting uh, where people come down to re-experience the waters of baptism. So how about a little, yes, we'll gather. Okay. Good job, good job. <laughs> right. So yes, they're refreshing their baptism and reliving that experience. But it's a beautiful place. And as many people think about the Jordan River, they think about it being dry and arid. Well, that's true down toward Jericho and the Dead Sea. But up in the northern parts of Galilee in particularly, it is beautifully lush and green, even much like Mississippi and some of the beautiful waters that we have that flow through our state. So that's uh, the map, except for Gardner has found his way to the Mount of Beatitudes today. Way back on Gardner. Somewhere uh, up in the hills, kind of between Capernaum and Tabga, up on the hills, is the Mount of the Beatitudes, the place associated with Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And there at the Mount of Beatitudes is the Church of the Beatitudes, an octagonal-shaped church with one side dedicated to each of the Beatitudes that we receive in Matthew. Well, you realize it's a, it's a beautiful scene, and I hope it helps to kind of regenerate in your mind the time and the place and the area where Jesus was teaching as he preached to the people. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount is the first of five main sections of teaching that Matthew gives us, and it's in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel. You can read it easily in one little short sitting by reading those three chapters in Matthew's gospel. Now, some other things about that, though. Many scholars, remember, believe that the Sermon on the Mount may not have necessarily been the one sermon manuscript that Jesus produced for one day's sermon, but perhaps was a compilation of the thoughts and themes of Jesus preaching and teaching. 
Uh, we know that he went from place to place. He went to a lot of different places. But why in the world would Matthew gather all of these things into one body of material in his gospel? If you look in, Matthew, in uh, Luke and Mark, these teachings are scattered more in lots of different places related to different circumstances and situations in which Jesus found himself, some of them associated with parables. The interesting thing is that there are real differences in what we receive in Luke and Matthew. In Luke's gospel, the, it's more scattered out, and it seems that as Jesus went from place to place, he shared at least parts of this at different times and places. But the location that Luke's, Luke describes is different. While Matthew says he went up on the mountainside and there he taught the people, Luke says he went to a level place. It's usually called the Sermon on the Plain. So why in the world would we have two different things unless we come to realize that all of these thoughts and themes come together in some sense as Jesus' stump speech, the thing that he said over and over and over again, the thoughts and themes that he shared with people of villages and towns and cities all over the place. He preached it more than once. He gave many people these same words in different ways. Just remember that it's not necessarily one sermon, but a compilation of different things. Um, a simple reference that I want to make today, just for a moment to kind of sweep it out of the way, is to verses 17 through 20 that we heard just a moment ago. Um, in the verses 17 through 20, what we're hearing is that Jesus is just in love with the law of the Hebrew people. It's something that means the world to him, and he wants to follow it. it. Just as the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to keep the law in front of the people, wanted to follow it to the letter uh, before the people, and wanted the people to do the same thing. Jesus loves the law, but he takes it to a whole different level. He says, I'm not here. Some of you think I'm trying to teach something different. But I'm not here to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm here to fulfill the law, to bring it to completion so that all things might be accomplished. And then he goes on to say, whoever breaks even the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commandments and teaches others to do that too, will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then one last thing. He says, and this is the key verse, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're going to find it hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we're going to look at that a good bit more next week as we talk about the higher righteousness that Jesus calls us to. But for today, we'll kind of use that as our introduction and sweep it out of the way. You know, it's easy enough to take verses 13 through 16 just by themselves. It is salt and light, two common elements that people experience every day. Of course, there were other common things that Jesus referred to as he taught amongst the people. There was bread, 
There was water. All of those things that we experience every day. Now, you and I know that salt is used for a lot of different things. The thing that we most like is we're Southern people. We like our vegetables cooked with bacon and butter and salt. That's right. Now, some of you sit there going, no, no, I can't eat salt. (laughs) Jesus did not know about high blood pressure, evidently. But we do know that salt was used for flavoring of food, even back in Jesus' day. But it was also used for preserving food. And that's one of the things that they used to help preserve meat. Okay? But then there were also a couple of other things related to the Jews that um, salt meant a lot for. One was that it was a symbol of the covenant relationship of the people with God. It was used as a symbol. Look back in Numbers and in Leviticus and you'll find references to salt as an expression of the people's covenant relationship. But then also salt was used in some of the purification practices related to sacrifice. So salt was something that they experienced every day. And when it comes to light, of course, they were looking for the sun to come up every day. And they, and they enjoyed the warmth of the sun's rays upon their faces. And they knew what it was like to live in the dark. At night, they didn't just run to the switch like Jennifer was talking about and flip it on, you know, to dispel the darkness. They went and they lit a lamp or a candle, a lamp more than likely. And that's where we get the description of the lamp and the bushel basket being put on top of it. Uh, I'm sure that it was a difficult thing to study, uh, study by lamp light as Abraham Lincoln did. It was difficult to do anything in a Hebrew household of Jesus' time simply because there just wasn't enough light at night. Hmm. Common things that Jesus used to describe to us salt and light and give us a teaching on discipleship. But that's what he did. He took common everyday things and he used them as a way to teach. But for Jesus, it was the quality of the salt that made the difference. For Jesus, it was the visibility of the light that meant all the difference. There's one other thing that I think we ought to examine, and that is a perspective that the verses coming just before set up this passage about salt and light. If you look back at verses 11 and 12, which we read last week as part of the Beatitudes reading, and then you look back into the Beatitudes, you'll see a couple of things. One is you get those eight Beatitudes. They're written in the third person. So you get something like, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But then you get to verses 11 and 12, and you get a shift in the person. It moves from third person to second person. And here's how those verses go in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets 
who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You see how the shift in pronouns may relate these two pieces of scripture? So what, what is Jesus trying to say to us? Could it be that the verses about persecution were meant to set the context for this, these verses about salt and light? If that were true, um, if persecution were the backdrop to the salt and light sayings, it might go something like this. If the pressure of persecution causes you to lose your saltiness, you are of no more value to anyone. Or if persecution causes you to hide or to put your witness under a bushel, you deny your very purpose. You see what I mean? Perhaps one leads into the other. Or, well, maybe 13 through 16 stand on their own. One other thing about this. You might remember that last week as we explored the Beatitudes, it was not as if uh, Matthew was giving it to us this way. Matthew was not saying, and Jesus was not saying, "If if you will be pure in heart, then you'll receive a blessing. He was not saying, if you will be people who mourn, you will be comforted. It's not that. What he was saying was, those of you who mourn, those of you who are pure in heart, those of you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, all of you. And in some way, he described every person in the crowd. All of you are blessed by God. All of you receive the blessing. Of God, No matter where you find yourself in your life, you will receive God's blessing. Well, in the same way, he's not saying to us, if you'll do this or if you'll do that, then you get to be the salt of the earth. He's not saying, if you will say this to these people, then you'll be the light of the world. Or if you will do this or do that, you'll be the light of the world. He is, he's saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. As God's people, you don't have a choice. And you don't have to earn it. You are the salt. You are the light already. You receive the blessing already. You are the salt and light already. We get a similar thing here as we do in the Beatitudes. Now Jesus' followers are not encouraged to be salt and light. They are salt and light. The question has to do with the quality of their saltiness and the visibility of their light. Meaning, you are a witness every single day. You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world every single day. The question becomes, what kind of witness are you? What's the quality of your witness? How visible is it? And when we begin to hear questions like that, it starts to scare us, doesn't it? Some of you may remember back in World War II, I I don't know that it was practiced here in this area at all, really, But there would be a a siren that sounded and then everybody was supposed to black out their windows, you know, 
turn out all the lights, black out the windows, that sort of thing. Did any of that happen around here? I don't think it did. Some of you are looking at, <laughs> at your grandparents and saying, well, no. <laughs> well, maybe it didn't happen here, but it happened in places like England because they received nightly bombing raids. And when they heard the sirens, they knew that they would turn out the lights, blacken all the windows if, if they had some sort of light in the area so that they would not be identified as a target, right? They knew that if the Germans could see where the light was coming from, that they'd know that's where the people were and that's where the bombs would fall. So they blacked everything out. But you know, that's kind of what this is all about. We lose our witness when we hide because we don't want to be a target. We don't want the persecution that can come with it. But you can do this. You can be a highly visible witness in the world today. The thing about it, that's the thing about salt. Salt can if you get it in your eyes, if you get too much, it'll sting your eyes. You ever sweat it into your eyes? Yeah, it stings. If someone has rubbed salt on an open wound, how's that feel? Not too good. And if you bring salt into the world and really rub it in, the world doesn't like it. So you have to be ready because sometimes it stings. Sometimes when you shine light on things in the world, shine light on the evil and the suffering and crises in the world, the world doesn't like it. Or if you want to shine light on the world's misbehavior, the world doesn't like it. So from time to time, if you live as salt of the earth, if you live as light of the world, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And you can do this. Jesus says you can. God says that you can. I can remember back when I was a, a young pastor. I guess this would have been around the middle 80s. Every, every year I would go to the pastor's school. We've got one coming up starting tomorrow. And I'll be there because I like to learn something. Um, but at this particular pastor school, there was going to be an emphasis on preaching, and, and uh, we were really looking forward to that. And um, one of the things that, uh, uh, one of the workshops or a seminar that they had advertised ahead of time, one of the, one of the old, uh, well-known uh, preachers from Mississippi who had moved off and, you know, become some big wig in the church somewhere else was going to come back. His name was Billy. I can't remember his last name. But all the older guys seemed to know him, you know, and so they were, they were excited about him coming back. And they said he was going to do a seminar on preaching on controversial issues. Wow. We thought, what an opportunity. All of us young preachers, we, we were so excited. We were going to hear about this. They're going to tell us how to do this. And so we went to that seminar in mass. We wanted to find out how in the world do you preach on controversial issues. And so uh, we got in there, and the, the leader, Billy, says, here's, here's what you need to do when it comes to controversial issues in the pulpit. He said, 
don't preach on controversial issues. <laughs> and of course, we didn't, you know, we were sorely disappointed because we thought we'd missed out on a great opportunity. And he said, I didn't say don't ever deal with controversial issues because they need to be dealt with. What I'm saying is that the pulpit is not necessarily the place where it needs to happen. Because if somebody hears something that you say about a controversial issue, they can make up, make up their mind, that person agrees with me, walk out the door and you never see them again. But if you do that in a Sunday school class, or in a one-on-one -on -one situation, or in a small group where the opportunity exists for discussion and to really get into the issue and deal with the serious implications and ramifications and all those sorts of things, that's, where, that's what he was saying. But that's always been a struggle for those of us in the pulpit, is how do we deal with things that are important and at the same time stay engaged with a congregation? I struggle with it so much myself. But if you want to deal with a controversial subject, you can call me up or email me. I would love to sit down with you and talk it through or share with your Sunday school class and do the best that I can because I'm simply one more blind beggar trying to lead another blind beggar to food, you know. John Wesley had a way of dealing with those confrontational sort of situations. There's a story of John Wesley as he was in a preaching engagement in the town of Bath in England. An interesting place because there are remnants of Roman baths that are there and... Um, you know, it became a place for the well-to-do and rich to come as a kind of a resort area. John Wesley went there to preach. And there was a man who was kind of a gadabout town named Bo Nash. And uh, they encountered each other on the street one day. Bo Nash says, I hear that your preaching scares the people. John Wesley says, well... I don't believe I've ever seen you at one of my preaching engagements. How do you come to that conclusion? And Bo Nash says, by common report. John Wesley says, well, if you are Bo Nash, then I dare not judge you by common report. Hmm. That little five foot, four inch tall man, preacher, all tied up in spiritual discipline and living holy lives. And, you know, he probably wasn't a whole lot of fun to live around. But he didn't stand down when it became important to be salt, to be light. It's hard for us. It's difficult for all of us. Maybe none of us has the answer except for Jesus does. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Be high quality salt. Be highly visible light. We need to show people that they can be salt and light. Maybe you might try this little exercise. Just when you have the chance to be salt and light for somebody else, have an effect on somebody else's life, make a real difference, just kind of jot that down for yourself. Keep a journal of it. Make a log of it. 
and you'll begin to see how you're impacting others. If your list comes up light, then work on it. If your list, though, is something that might be inspirational to other people, then share with others ways that you have found to be salt and light in the world today. The purpose of the salt and light analogy becomes obvious in verse 16. Why is it that we are to be high-quality, high-visible witnesses in the world today? It is so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But here's the thing. How many Christians do you know who live lives of piety and righteousness just so they can gain attention for themselves? If you're not careful, that can happen to you. But we're called to be salt and light. Not that we might receive praise, but rather that God might be glorified. Mary Jane Severe said that one of her favorite um, favorite cliches or favorite platitudes is one that comes from Confucius that <laughs> says, much better to light one small candle than to curse at the darkness. Better to light one small candle than to curse at the darkness. And what that says, I think, is saying you do your part even if it's a small part. Make it a good part. Make it a highly visible part because that's the kind of life, that's the kind of witness that Jesus calls us to.